0: I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country.
1: Wow. That's what a real president sounded like, eh?
0: Don't know why I came here tonight. Nice reminder. I got the feeling that something right. You know ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle.
1: From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets, even during pandemics. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Here with another edition of the Bradcast, your stay-at-home radio companion. And I do hope you are staying at home. The reason for playing President Lyndon Baines Johnson there at the top of the show... Uh, will become clear enough in a moment or so, but first, hello, Desi Doyle Hello.
2: How you doing? Oh,
1: never better. Never <laughs> better.
2: Hanging in, we like to say.
1: Okay, as we go to air, uh, some version of voting is going on in both Ohio and Maryland uh, on Tuesday. Maryland's 7th District is holding a special election For the U.S. House to fill the vacant seat left uh, by Baltimore's late and beloved Democratic Congressman Elijah Cummings, the race, uh, the special election race, is between Democrat Kwasi Mfumi and Republican Kimberly Classic. Mfumi is a former president and CEO of the NAACP and a former five term Democratic congressman himself who held that very seat in the 7th District until stepping down for an unsuccessful run. For the U.S. Senate, he was then succeeded by Cummings, whose vacant seat he is now hoping to fill as the uh, heavily favored candidate in that uh, very Democratic-leaning district against the 38-year-old classic. Uh, Maryland opened just three polling stations for Tuesday's special congressional election after mailing ballots uh, were to, to every uh, registered voter. Nearly half a million of them amid the coronavirus pandemic after the state's Republican governor, Larry Hogan, issued a proclamation last month requiring vote by mail to determine who would finish the term of uh, Congressman Cummings, who died in October. Uh, The election was originally planned as an all vote by mail election until it became clear that some in-person polling places were actually needed for voters who were uh, disabled or were homeless, who, who didn't receive a ballot for any particular reason. And normally I would say we'll have results for you on our next broadcast, but actually, Maryland is quarantining the absentee ballots themselves for <laughs> really? 24 hours. Oh, yeah. Okay. For 24 hours after Election Day. So it may take a while until we uh, get a result there, although I suspect we could probably guess at what it will be. Also, Ohio is having the last day of its presidential primary on Tuesday. Uh, and I say the last day because it was actually scheduled uh, for about a month ago. I think it was March 17 and it was canceled at the last minute, literally hours before polls opened um, by the Republican governor there in Ohio. Uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic, and so a lot of people had voted more than a month ago uh, in early voting leading up to that uh, initial date. Uh, But it will finally conclude, at least to some extent, uh, after Tuesday's voting, which, uh, by the way, unlike New York State... For now, anyway, Uh, Bernie Sanders is still on that ballot in Ohio for those who might like to see him do well to help move presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden toward the progressive left. Most of the voting in Ohio will also be via absentee ballot, though voters can vote in person at county boards of elections. Uh, with uh, both Ohio and Maryland serving as what may be a template for this November's general election in all 50 states, depending on how things go, Uh, and certainly for the 20 or so states with uh, primaries still coming up in May and June and even in July. In addition to the presidential primary across Ohio, 482 local issues are on the ballot So even if you don't care anymore about the presidential primary, uh, the election on Tuesday is important for that reason. Also, several contested primary elections for congressional seats in Ohio are on the ballot as well. In a state where primary elections often decide who goes to the U.S. House because of the 16 state congressional districts Uh, that have been gerrymandered across the Buckeye State for years. So uh, often those races come down to who wins the primary, determines who will actually go to the U.S. House. So frankly, whether there's a presidential primary or not, these elections and those that are still upcoming do matter on a whole bunch of levels. And no, we won't have results in Ohio tomorrow either, most likely, since the coronavirus rules for this election allow ballots postmarked by the Monday before Election Day to still be counted, even if they arrive up to 10 days after the election. So not sure how Ohio is going to play this, when they're going to start releasing numbers. Uh, So but uh, we will have results for Ohio and Maryland whenever, I guess.
2: That sounds pretty good. (laughs) I
1: hope I hope the world will not come crashing down without the immediate results Uh, within hours after polling. Yeah, I don't know if the media
2: can stand it, but I guess they're going to have to somehow manage. And it seems interesting that the world has also not come crashing down because there was such a long period of early voting for Ohio, and yet Ohio still exists. Uh,
1: And they've been early voting now for like
2: two months. Oh, my God. Somebody tell Republicans.
1: (sighs) Oh, they know. Oh, they know. And that's exactly what they're trying to avoid. More people voting, more democracy. Can't have that. Not in the United States of America, as uh, Donald Trump and more state governors are calling for businesses to be opened uh, quickly, even though thousands continue to become infected and die from the coronavirus around the country. And including uh, 40 people now uh, have been uh, found to have been infected following the election in Wisconsin what uh, a few weeks ago now right. i think it's april 7 forced uh, we're to now vote up in to person. 40 actually 40 in milwaukee alone and they were forced to vote in person there uh, because the uh, wisconsin's democratic governor was unsuccessful in moving everything to a vote by mail election because the republicans in the state legislature there and the republicans on the state supreme court there and the republicans on the us supreme court there all insisted That the election moved forward as usual. So now we have 40 people at least who have contracted the virus since that election in Milwaukee alone. In any event, all of this is going on and Donald Trump and some Republican governors want to open things back up as quickly as possible. Well, we might look to Germany first to see how things are working out there after the country has begun to ease lockdown restrictions. About one week ago, Germany's Disease Control Center says the country's rate of coronavirus infections has, in fact, increased, according to AP. But the number of new infections, at least for now, remains at a manageable level for the moment, just one week after reopening some businesses. The number of people infected by every person with COVID-19 is now at 0.96, so less than one person for every person who uh, has already been infected. Uh, Authorities want to try to keep that below 1%. To keep the pandemic manageable for the healthcare system, but it had been around 0.7. So it moved from 0.7 up to 0.96 in just one week after Germany eased their lockdown restrictions on April 20 to allow smaller businesses to open while keeping social distancing in place. So they're doing it very carefully, very conservatively, and it has already seemed to have ticked up the, in, uh, the infection rate. We'll be able to compare that soon enough, I suspect, to states like Georgia and Texas, who are throwing the doors open uh, to many businesses for some reason. Germany currently has about a thousand new infections reported per day. But that is down from a high of some 6,000 during the peak in Germany. The virus has infected a total of nearly 160,000 people. It has killed about 6,000 in that country. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., the number of infections ticked up over a million today with about 58,000 now dead. Uh, That is just about the number of Americans killed in nine years of the Vietnam War. Just one of the reasons I played that uh, Lyndon B. Johnson at the top of the show there. But, you know, I I don't even know why. Uh, Washington Post reports today another data point among many now uh, many known failures for this current administration to take proper action to protect the American people and to save lives. Trump was warned about this pending disaster, uh, we know, uh, over and over again by officials in his own administration. He ignored them. But, you know, I don't even know why we bother to give Republican presidents presidential daily briefs anymore, or PDBs at this point, given how all of them seem to simply ignore whatever dire warnings they are presented with. You can see George W. Bush ignoring warnings before 9-11. Or about Hurricane Katrina. And now, well, now we have this from The Washington Post. U.S. intelligence agencies issued warnings about the novel coronavirus in more than a dozen classified briefings prepared for Donald Trump in January and February, months during which he continued to downplay the threat. That, according to current and former U.S. officials, the repeated warnings were conveyed in issues of the president's daily brief, a sensitive report that is produced each day and designed to call the president's attention to the most significant global developments and security threats. For weeks, the PDB traced the virus's spread around the globe, made clear that China was suppressing information about it and about its transmissibility and its lethal toll, and uh, raise the prospect of dire political and economic consequences. But those alarms appear to have failed to even register with the president, who routinely skips reading the PDB and has at times shown little patience for even the oral summary that he takes two or three times per week, according to officials. The advisories being relayed by U.S. spy agencies were part of a broader collection of worrisome signals that came during a period now regarded by many public health officials and other experts as a squandered opportunity to contain the outbreak. U.S. officials emphasized the PDB references to the virus, included comprehensive articles on aspects of the global outbreak, and also smaller digest items meant to keep Trump and senior officials updated on the course of the contagion. One official said that by mid to late January, the coronavirus was being mentioned more frequently, either as one of the report's core articles or in what is known as executive updates, and that it was almost certainly called to Trump's attention orally. Yet, uh, as this was happening, Trump was ignoring the warning. He did uh, finally in January restrict travel from China, though even after his restriction, which the Post does not mention here, more than 40,000 people traveled from China to the U.S. So, yeah, not much of a restriction. He then spent much of February publicly downplaying the threat, while his administration failed to mobilize for a major outbreak by securing supplies of protective equipment, developing diagnostic tests, or preparing plans to quarantine large portions of the population. Trump insisted publicly on February 26, again now several weeks after the PDB repeatedly warned about the dangers that the number of cases within a couple of days is going to be down close to zero he said the next day that it's like a miracle it will disappear in reality the virus was by then moving swiftly through communities across the US spreading virtually unchecked in New York City and other population centers until state governors began imposing sweeping lockdowns requiring social distancing and all but closing huge sectors of the country's economy as of late uh, March, uh, March 10, uh, Trump said, just stay calm. It will go away. And then the next day, the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak to be a global pandemic. But by then, officials said the warnings in the PDB and other intelligence reports had taken on the aspect of an insistent drumbeat. And yet Trump ignored it over and over and over again and has still failed to take responsibility. Now, eventually, uh, I think it took subpoenas and lawsuits and everything else uh, where we finally got to see, for example, the PDB from George W. Bush prior to 9-11 warning about exactly what ended up happening I suspect, or at least I hope, at some point we'll be able to see the warnings that he ignored, that Trump ignored in his own PDBs that came over and over again. But after that epic failure, the U.S. has had more than a million cases now, and at any moment we will have more deaths from the coronavirus, which he ignored repeatedly, than the entire Vietnam War. Yes, yes. This is Trump's Vietnam. Are the media covering it with the historic import that it deserves? Well, Eric Bullard of Press Run joins us next to discuss that. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. (laughs) and thanks.
2: There's something happening here. but What it is ain't exactly clear. Mm-hmm. There's a man with a gun over there. Telling me I got to beware. It's time we stop, children, what's
0: that sound? Everybody look what's going down.
1: Yes, please do look what's going down. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In the winter of 1968, as Eric Bollard observes in his most recent press run column, with no end in sight to the surging Vietnam War and unable to see a way past his signature failure and the divided nation the conflict had created... With, I might add, Dems in disarray at the time, President Lyndon Johnson announced to a shocked nation that he shall not seek and will not accept the Democratic nomination for president. The war with an American death toll that eventually reached 58,000 had destroyed the Johnson presidency. As we go to air today, the official death toll from the COVID-19 uh, is just below 58,000 and will likely, by the time we get off air tonight, be above the official U.S. death toll from all of the bloody and brutal years of the Vietnam War, which was 58,220 If you're keeping track, we are likely to surpass that number easily before sunrise tomorrow. If we haven't already, keeping in mind that the number of dead in the U.S. from the coronavirus is likely twice the current official uh, confirmed number, which uh, generally only includes those who have died in hospitals after being tested positive for the virus. Moreover, the number of confirmed infections in the U.S. as of today has climbed over one million. That is, of course, a long way from the 15 or so cases that Donald Trump marginalized in late February when he said that within a couple of days, that number is going to be down to close to zero. So he was just off by 999,985 cases. Give him a break. What uh, what uh, took nine years of jungle warfare in Vietnam, Eric Bullard notes, Uh, Trump and his utterly failed pandemic leadership has overseen in just six weeks time, yet rather than conceding his failures and acknowledging his shame the way that Johnson did in a selfless attempt to heal the nation, Donald Trump has spent recent days suggesting people ingest Lysol or Clorox in order to cure themselves of covid-19. Nearly 58,000 are dead, Bullard writes. The American economy has collapsed, food lines are growing, and the unemployment rate could hit 20 percent this year. In a sense, this is Trump's Vietnam and Trump's Great Depression. And at this point, I would add that tossing in Trump's Katrina into that description almost seems to uh, to minimize the massive size and horror of this historic failure of leadership. Bollert raises these questions about the news media, which he covers in on his uh, press run beat. He asks, does the news coverage of Trump that you see today reflect the truly historic and once-in-a-century events that have quickly unfolded this year? Do you get a sense that the news media are capturing how unhinged the Trump presidency has become? And do they put the epic failures in firm context? And... What lessons are the press learning from Trump's Vietnam? Here to answer all of those questions that he asks and more is our longtime friend Eric Bullard who is a longtime news media analyst and critic at uh, Media Matters for America and Salon. He is now publishing his own free email newsletter called Press Run, which you can subscribe to for free at pressrun.media. Eric Bullard, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. The uh, before you uh, answer some of those questions that you asked about how the media are treating uh, what I, and I'm guessing you uh, see as the epic historic, one-for-the-record book's colossal failure of the Trump presidency. Uh, Let's look at the media's treatment of Democrats first, if you don't mind. You also write about that in a recent press-run column. Uh, Eric, as you know, I've been following your work for years at this point, going on decades now because you and I are so old. Uh, And and during uh, those years, I would say that the majority of those years, you've had one consistent theme of complaint against the mainstream corporate media, Uh, Often focused on the New York Times, but on the other uh, media as well. The Dems in disarray narrative that seems to be ever present now, no matter uh, the actual political situation on the ground. And as you alluded to in your press run piece, uh, even even now with a Vietnam's worth of dead from coronavirus and the worst unemployment since the Great Depression, uh, not the Great Recession under Bush, but the Great Depression under Herbert Hoover. Uh, you explain the Dems uh, that that the uh, Dems in disarray narrative is now back in the corporate media. Explain how you see that playing out right now.
3: Yeah, I mean they are connected, and and uh, and I'll start with the second one first in terms of the Dems in disarray. Uh, you know the uh, fifty six, you know fifty five, fifty six thousand deaths. We're at 26 million lost jobs. I guarantee it's going to be 30 million lost mm-hmm. jobs. Uh, it was, no president, obviously, in the history of our country, has ever tried to run for re-election with those staggering statistics on his resume. Mm-hmm. and. Uh so you would think if you you know, obviously the campaign coverage has been completely upended because of the pandemic. There is no campaign to cover. There are no rallies, uh tradition you know, the mm-hmm. traditional TikTok that uh reporters look for. Uh but the the I I get the feeling and I wrote about it last week and certainly in the New York Times, they seem committed to try to keep this as a as a very traditional campaign and in a very traditional campaign the Republican is super savvy. And the Democrat is being outsmarted and outmaneuvered uh, and probably outspent by the Republicans. So uh, the piece I looked at was, you know, the New York Times, just kind of this drumbeat uh, of Joe Biden stories. You know, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden doesn't have enough money. Joe Biden doesn't have enough YouTube followers. Joe Biden has disappeared. Joe Biden doesn't have a youth vote, Um, which are all kind of, yeah, you can do those. You can spread those out. Those are fair topics. But when you do it against the backdrop of a pandemic, and you do it against the backdrop of a sitting president with 30 million lost jobs, that stuff seems pretty darn trivial. <laughs> uh, but they are, they are just determined to stick with it. Uh, and, and, and this has been kind of the epic double standard that they've used for years. And just real quick, you know, the mm-hmm. 55,000, the 56,000 deaths. Barack Obama, the, during the midterms of 2014, D.C. Press was writing his obit- political obituary yeah. because two people, died of Ebola. Two people. And they didn't know how he was going to, you know, recover from that. The political implications were staggering. The federal government had failed. Of course, they didn't. They contained mm-hmm. the Ebola virus perfectly. Uh, and, and, and so it's amazing. Two Ebola deaths, 56,000 uh, COVID deaths. And the press
0: kind of
3: sees those as similar. Yes. And that just, to me, just shows how committed they are to this idea Oh, and, and with the Biden stuff, you know, that's the context of him leading, you know, if you go to real real clear politics. Mm-hmm. Biden is leading in 40 of the last 42 polls. Mm-hmm. That was last Friday. I just read a tweet. There are seven new polls this week. He's up by 10, 12 points in some places. Yeah. Uh, he's leading in every swing state. I, I always have the caveat, I have no idea who's going to win. I do not, uh, polls in April and mm-hmm. May do not determine. But traditionally, if you're going to look at the uh, campaign coverage... Yeah, polling is a big part of it. And the guy who's losing in 44 of the 46 (laughs) polls is probably not the savvy candidate. But you kind of get the feeling that's how the press still sees Trump, with these staggering Death toll and staggering job losses. So to me, it's kind of amazing.
1: Now, I have a, I, I do have a theory that I want to ask you about that that yeah. you reference as to why the New York Times and and the others sort of cover things the way they do. But before I get to that, the uh, just to pick up on on your point about the polls, uh, you note that as for presidential campaigns, there seems to be different media standards for Democrats and Republicans who are up for re-election. Back in 2011, as Barack Obama eyed his second term, the campaign press raised all kinds of alarms about his prospects when polls showed him tied with likely Republican opponents, and yet here we have polls that show Trump uh, losing in, uh, you know, poll after poll to Biden in these head-to-head matchups, and yet you are not seeing as many uh, Republicans-in-disarray type stories in the mainstream mainstream press. Now, uh, let me ask you, uh, so are you seeing those stories? And Um, You know, the fact that uh, Trump won last time after uh, the polls showed him losing nationally, because we don't do national polls. The only ones that are are national, we don't have national uh, elections, we have state-by-state elections. Yeah. So the only ones that really matter should be the state head-to-head matchups, but even there. Uh, we just had one from Michigan, one from Pennsylvania. Both of them show Biden winning by uh, eight points in each state. So yet we don't see the Republicans in disarray narrative from the media.
3: Uh, you know, it's interesting. I wrote my piece on Friday mm-hmm. in terms of, the, you know, the, the Biden and, and Dems in and disarray. I have actually seen the Times over the weekend kind of did a story. I've seen a couple more since. I mean, you can't ignore what's going on with the pandemic. You mm-hmm. can't ignore when Trump talks about maybe you should drink Lysol. That's going to have a real political impact. There was a good piece in New York Magazine about how Republicans behind the scenes are saying, you know, are panicked about November and mm-hmm. are saying, um, you know, don't even try. It's not worth defending. Um, and, and so there, there is a shift. The, the, these polling numbers are uh, uh, amazing. Again, yes, we don't have a national election, but you know, there's new polls that had Biden up twelve. He's mm-hmm. up in Ohio in a couple points. Mm. Six months ago, no one thought Ohio was in play. I'm I'm still not convinced it is. Right. He's winning in Florida by comfortable margins. You know, Obama won Florida, but you know, uh... uh again, six months ago, I don't think any Democrat thought, boy, oh, Florida is going to be our uh, the key to all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it, it, it is coming around a little bit just because the data points are so uh, kind of overwhelming at this point. And again, that Lysol thing, I think we're going to see as a turning point, it, it was, it was. You know,
1: it was bad. (laughs) Well, I tell you what bothers me here, Eric, is that um, a case can be made that, yes, Dems are in disarray in, uh, in various ways. The progressive and the centrist wings of the party have not yet fully come together. And frankly, New York's decision... Uh, on Monday to cancel the presidential primary next month does not help I hope they change their mind about that there's of course looming questions about Biden's uh, candidacy and these seemingly credible uh, if decades old uh, sexual assault charges against him by a former staffer in Congress you got Nancy Pelosi who has failed to insist on a number of priorities that her caucus has been pushing for her to do uh, as she's sort of in this uh, one woman US House uh, negotiation with mitch mcconnell and the white house those complaints and observations i think are legitimate uh, and might suggest some disarray uh among democrats but I, I, I guess the question is is it being similarly reported on the republican side where the mess seems to be exponentially worse right. in exactly. every regard
3: well, we are we are seeing, and everything you just mentioned, traditional campaign, absolutely cover all of that, right? If there's discontent mm-hmm. in the house, if there are questions about the nominee, all of that is fair game. You know, I just want to be perfectly clear. I don't think Democrats should be sheltered from anything. Uh, but if we're going to do this, uh, you know, against the backdrop of a pandemic, mm-hmm. et cetera, it, it's re- that to me is just like really you can. Thirty million lost jobs, it, 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 and and we're going to talk about you know Joe Biden doesn't have enough YouTube followers. I mean, <laughs> we're on the scales of political reality, and and excuse yeah. me, Joe Biden didn't have many YouTube followers during the primary. It didn't seem to bother him. Let's point that out as yeah. well. I mean, meaning that the 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 ground might be shifting these days. You know, let's not judge this this campaign based on the last battle and Mm -hmm. things like that but again you know i am seeing stories i think there was a political story the last couple days republicans worried about the senate i don't think there's any question about that uh uh, because uh how do you run how do you run against this backdrop i mean i guess their plan is to blame china there's no indication over the last five or ten days that that's that that is going to save them in any stretch. No. Uh, and, and and the problem is that Trump decided, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take all of this on. I'm going to be the face. I'm going to do 35 hours of briefings in five weeks. Mm-hmm. I think that was the number that the Washington Post came up when they added it all up. I'm brilliant. I can bluff my way through this. Everyone loves me. This has been his, you know, his narcissist fantasy for years. The more he talks, the more people cannot stand his guts. And and it's and, and it's just always been the case. Yeah. And it's always been the case. And but here's a good point, and, yeah. and and you raise a good point. What about the Republican Party? Where do they fit in on on this? The point is the the DC press has basically given the Republican Party a pass on Trump for 2 years. You know, there was a there was a kind of timid attempt on to like get responses when he said something stupid when he offended someone when he you know embarrassed the country on the national uh, on a global stage and and the message from the republican party was we don't care he can do whatever he wants stop asking us and after about a year reporters on the hill and other places just, just threw up their hands and they said they, they convinced themselves it wasn't news so if the Republican Party doesn't care that Trump makes, you know, uh, you know, an ass of himself all around the world, then they stopped asking the Republican mm-hmm. Party for quotes. Uh, so in a way, they completely left off the hook. Now, a quick point, and this was true during impeachment for Trump. You go back to Bill Clinton and impeachment, Democrats were hounded every, every day for 14 months. Mm-hmm. Everyone had to be on the record. Everyone had to issue a statement. How can you defend this? Will you defend it? How will you vote? By the time the Trump uh, impeachment came around, Republican party was given a pass because as I said, the press did uh, convinced themselves that uh that this wasn't really news. I, and you know, so,
1: I I remember your coverage. I mean, it seems like it was uh, years ago now, but it was just a couple of months ago uh when Donald Trump was actually being impeached and uh, yeah, right. your observation that uh even before Donald uh, uh, Bill Clinton was actually officially impeached uh, there are all kinds of calls from every mainstream media outlet out there for him to step down. He must resign. D- uh, did we ever see really any of those from any of the corporate media outlets calling for uh, Donald Trump to resign uh, during or uh, before his uh, his impeachment?
3: I think we got a grand total of two. I, uh, 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 I'm trying to remember because I did I mm-hmm. did write about you know, I've, I've been writing about this. On and off for two years, mm-hmm. a hundred plus newspapers demanded Bill Clinton resign, not um, uh, you know resign from office, not mm-hmm. that he should be impeached. This is this is different. Right, he should not be. Or he should he he was not fit to sit in the Oval Office to lead this country. Over a hundred newspapers, mm. uh, this uh, demanded that he that he stepped down. Uh, I think grand total today three have, have suggested <laughs> Trump do that. Uh, whether he is, you know, know, firing, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, James Comey, whether it's the Russia stuff, whether it's the Ukraine stuff, whether it's impeachment, whether it's just being a pathological liar. Fit for office. Bill Clinton wasn't fit for office because he lied about his affair with an intern. And uh, how much does that boggle your mind? But, hey, if you want to know why this is happening, you know, back in the 90s, newspapers were printing money. Uh, and they didn 't care if they offended some democratic uh, readers who you know maybe a few hundred canceled their subscriptions they didn 't care they were printing money today and i and I know this from people who work at newspapers and no. columnists uh, These newspapers are paper- you know Everyone knows the, the, the financial struggle they're facing. They cannot afford to have 200 conservative readers cancel their subscription. Mm-hmm. So everybody kind of knows the game. There's no way we're going to antagonize any conservatives who still subscribe to our newspaper. There's no way we're going to do the right thing. There's no way we're going to be consistent. If a Democratic president had to resign because he lied about an affair, uh, that there we're going to be consistent and, and say the Republican president has to resign because he asked a foreign power to interfere with our domestic election. He, I mean, how do you look at that and, and think anything other than wow? It, it's double well, standard here.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's really what it is is a normalization of the madness, and it has become so insane that, you know, nothing surprises us, nothing means anything anymore. He literally could do the old. He could go out and shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and we would figure out how, well, you know, we got an election coming up in a few months anyway so that will take care of it. I want to talk about the sort of the historic context that you place it in as Trump's Vietnam but I had mentioned my theory and I want to run this by you. I don't know if it is a good one but it is a theory. If the New York Times or the media as a whole, if if they are so, uh, or at least as pro-democratic as the Republicans like to claim. Uh, let's, Let's stipulate for a moment that that's possible, that maybe they are. Isn't it then also possible that they are tougher on Democrats because they are rooting for them in one sense and they want them Stop. to write their ship i mean i've never for example i've never understood the notion that you know reporting bad poll numbers depresses Turnout. It seems to me that it would raise the turnout for those who are worried, uh oh, my team is going to lose. Right. So when the New York Times reports on, uh, you know, what a disaster it is within the Democratic ranks, isn't that in one sense, couldn't they be sort of rooting for the Democrats to get their stuff together? Well,
3: that's interesting. I think I think the larger point I think in terms of why is there this double standard? Why do they hold Democrats to to a higher standard than Republicans? I think you're right. I think that they do feel more an affinity for Democrats, and they kind of they kind of uh, hold them to a higher standard because I think they see themselves more as part of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. I think they don't see themselves as part of the Republican Party, and therefore mm-hmm. they don't care mm-hmm. how much the Republican Party embarrasses itself and, and, and lowers our public uh discussion and things like that. Uh but you know the times of it with Trump, you know, it's tricky. You know, you can point a lot of great reporting they've done, but a lot of it is, is just really awful access journalism. Uh the normalization, you know, uh this week uh they they just, you know, they they just published this puff piece on Trump's new press secretary. <laughs> nice. Uh this is a woman, you know, a young woman who, you know, has no you know, she was a CNN, CNN hired in 2016. She's defended every ridiculous thing Trump's ever said. She doesn't have, you know, she won't hold any press briefings. She attacks the media all the time. Virtually everything she tweets about the pandemic is a lie. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this, is, this is just shredding whatever remnants of a press secretary we had. Uh, and, and here's the New York Times and looks at this, looks at the, looks at the Trump's communication team mm-hmm. during a pandemic. When it is a communications failure on epic proportions, if Trump's polling is down, his trustworthiness is down. We've talked about these unhinged chaotic briefings. New York Times looks at, looked at that and says, hey, let's do a puff piece on his communication team. Let's call up his new press secretary's friends, and, and, and they can tell us how, how amazing and wonderful she is. This is a woman who went on Fox in February and said, quote, literally, quote, the coronavirus will not uh, uh, impact the United States. We won't have any deaths here. <laughs> So this isn't just, oh, she spins for Trump, and that's her job. This is like she is a pathological liar the way Trump is a pathological liar. Rather than the necessary truth-telling, rather than addressing the radical nature of Trump and the Republican Party today, and now the radical nature of his press secretary, the New York Times pretends this is is all normal. Uh, There's nothing really new to see here. Gee, she's pugnacious, Mm quote-unquote uh... G. She's a fighter, quote unquote. She literally—if you go to her Twitter feed—she lies about a public health crisis every day, specifically about the state of testing. How, if you're the New York Times, do you look at that and say, "Hey, let's give her a puff piece"?
0: Yeah. I, so
3: that—that—that—that that, is—it's this institutional timidity and in the normalization, the desperate attempt to say this isn't that unusual. Yes, Trump is eccentric. Yes, he came in as a businessman, but everything else is still kind of the same. That's the message the Times wants to
1: send. And I I think that is the same message that they have been sending for his entire presidency, which was bad enough as is. You would think when we get to what you describe, Eric Bullard, as Trump's Vietnam and 58,000 dead at least, probably twice that number, more than a million infected Just weeks after the guy said, oh, this is all going to be close to zero in a a few days and it's going to disappear with the warm weather. You would think they would treat it with the gravity that it deserves, uh, as you describe, I think, in aptly comparing the presidencies of Lyndon Johnson to Donald Trump's, you know, with the 58,000 Americans who would eventually die in Vietnam, compared to the 58,000 already dead in just two months of the COVID crisis. So you ask a number of questions. Does the news coverage of Trump you see today reflect the truly historic and once-in-a-century events that have quickly unfolded this year? Do you get a sense that the news media are captured? Capturing the unhinged presidency, uh, how unhinged the presidency has uh, become and put the epic failures in firm context. Let me start there, because you ask whether the media is capturing how hinged this president's ha- presidency has become and whether they're putting those epic failures in context. I would say to the first part, I think, yes, I think they are covering how unhinged he is, but no To the second part, that, uh, you know, I'd say that even many of us in the independent and uh, alt-media are really not putting into context his presidency because there really is no context for such (laughs) an epic and ongoing, unending disaster. Uh, You know, we've never seen a presidency like this in the history of the United States. Is it just because we can't get it we cannot fully grok this moment in a historic sense uh at the moment
3: right there is no playbook for this right and, yeah. and so i i i think you know to a certain degree we don't have the proper language to deal with this look it's this is this is authoritarianism this is state run propaganda this is an autocratic leader mm-hmm. uh this is a racist a, li- a liar mentally unstable uh character defect defects those are all topics and terms the mainstream press does not want to talk about uh and so it, it 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 is so radical. this is the most radical player in American politics in terms of the amount of power he he has he has uh assumed uh but you're right, all kinds of ways this isn't talked about uh and and i and I think they're kind of afraid of it in terms of you know has the unhinged nature i again, I go back to the lysol from last thursday that I think to was was a turning point uh there had been a very loud debate about whether these briefings should be covered. I wrote a piece at Press Run Media a month ago. Mm-hmm. And I said specifically, to protect the American public, the press has to unplug Trump's misinformation uh, about the pandemic. Uh, cable news was never going to unplug this guy, uh, and, yep. and and so that was a, a kind of a, a loud debate. Uh, but it's funny, you know, we go to the Lysol. Uh, so now, f- three or four days later, it's conventional wisdom. Wow, that was a disaster. Wow, that was a turning point. Wow, that was unhinged. Again, uh, you know, I don't always mean to beat up on the New York Times, but mm-hmm. the next morning, or that night, whenever they posted it in the print edition, the next morning, if you read the straight news story about his Lysol briefing, you would have thought Trump was suggesting we lower the tax rate by 1%. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a straight news story. Yeah. Uh, and actually, the Times got beat up online because in their Twitter... They talked. That they said that, quote, some experts thought it was a bad idea. Like, who are these experts who think you should be drinking Clorox? So it was. It was just that knee-jerk timidity. Trump says drink Lysol. Let's cover it as news. We kind of suggest to readers halfway through this might not be a good idea. It wasn't until two or three days later that The Times really came out and said, "Oh, this was crazy." But in real time, as usual. You know, it was the normalization and the timidity, you know, and I said three years ago, if Trump has a briefing, he says the, the moon is made of cheese half the press is going to cover that as a straight news story. They they just are. That's their mindset. Well,
1: you don't know that it is not made of cheese, and I read over at Breitbart that it might be. (laughs) So, you know, it's not your job to uh, make such decisions. Just call balls and strikes, Bullert. There Uh, we go. I've got just a minute or two (laughs) left here, but you write the Vietnam War represented a turning point for how the news media dealt with the U.S. government, misled and lied to by three straight administrations. The press slowly built up newfound skepticism about a Official government pronouncements and denials that trend soon spiked with Richard Nixon's criminal Watergate enterprise. I suspect, Eric, that we will see something similar uh, as we did, uh, you know, following George W. Bush, where the media attempted to apply the lessons that they learned. To the next person in office, who is, of course, likely to be a Democrat, uh, <laughs> you know, and th- I mean that I think explains sort of the unending scrutiny of Obama in regard to you know Benghazi or Hillary Clinton and her emails. Right. So right, I, right. I I think maybe they will learn the lessons, <laughs> and they will sure make sure that Take Joe Biden never gets away with it. Yeah.
3: Well, that's a very good point. You know, in, in terms of the Vietnam stuff, look, those lessons—it took the, the, the American press a long time to learn those lessons. They came out of an era where you absolutely just believe the federal government. When, particularly issues of war and peace, uh, it took them many years to finally summon up the summon the courage and say, "Hey, these these uh, commanders in, in Saigon are lying to us." Trump's Vietnam is six weeks. Yep. And So it's a much shorter uh, time period. I don't see the press really learning and adjusting. I don't see the press saying, oh, my God, he's going to lie about a public health crisis. we got to change the way we cover this guy. Uh, I haven't seen that. Maybe you're right. Maybe they'll take it out on the Democrat who, who yeah. uh, enters the White oh, House.
1: Oh, they're going to be January 21st of uh, right? 2021. They are going to be tough, but only if joe biden or a democrat ends up being the uh, the winner of that election we will see uh very quickly uh before i let you go eric and i will of course link to your story uh on uh trump's vietnam here uh over at press run but you've just started up press run uh, just a few months ago a newsletter which folks can subscribe to for free at pressrun.media uh very quickly uh give us your uh your your quick elevator pitch for it eric
3: Oh sure sure I call it a fearless media commentary uh you know for folks who might be familiar with my work in media matters mm-hmm. and Daily Coast um you know it's a look it's a it's a progressive look at the political press uh it's it's obviously a lot of stuff uh, a lot of essays about um, uh, covid um coverage but mm-hmm. also you know you know, both sides journalism, false equivalency, uh, how the press has kind of failed fundamentally in the Trump era. Um, so, yeah, it's pressrun.media. You can sign up free. You get three columns a week, and we have a great community going and lots of engagement and uh, and all that fun stuff.
1: And I enjoy it three times a week. I always learn something. Pressrun.media is where you go. You can sign up for free there, or you can just read his columns there uh, if you like. You can also harangue him on the Twitters at Eric. Bullert, uh, which is always fun. Uh, Eric, always great speaking with you, my friend. Hope we will uh, find an excuse to do it again soon.
3: All right. Be good, my friend.
1: Thank you, brother. Okay, quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. (laughs) You know who'd like to stop the world right now, Desi Doyen? (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, The oil industry. Oh, indeed. I think so. Uh, uh, You know, I think uh, the phrase that comes to mind when I think about today's Green News Report, for some reason, this has been in my head all day oil, oil, toil, and trouble. I think that's about right. Uh, Yeah, they're definitely in trouble. (laughs) Yes, that kind of describes our latest Green News report. The
2: president has asked me to look at all of our options. Obviously, it's a pretty extraordinary situation. Trump administration desperately looking for ways to bail out the U.S. oil industry. Big banks ditching Arctic drilling projects. Federal judge blocks Keystone XL pipeline. Again, plus...
3: During this crisis, the goal is to get up to
1: 100 miles
3: of those open streets
2: new york city taking back the streets for pedestrians
1: all of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com i'm brad friedman and
2: i'm desi doyan
1: stand by for six minutes of independent green news politics analysis and snarky comment
3: it is the 50th earth day the big 5-0 and i gotta say earth is still looking good
1: she's just getting hotter every year oh man this is your green news report Okay, Desi Doyen, Donald Trump has not been able to save the coal industry. They continue to die. And now it looks like the oil industry is dying on his watch as well.
2: Yep, the Trump White House is under growing pressure from Republicans and oil lobbyists to bail out the U.S. oil industry, suffering from crashing oil prices due to a collapse in demand during coronavirus shutdowns around the world and a global oil supply glut. Demand in the United States alone has fallen 30%. Goldman Sachs on Monday warned its clients that global oil storage could be full in just three to four weeks. Reuters reports that at least one company has asked regulators to permit the use of pipelines for crude oil storage. And Trump Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said he may create a special federal loan program to give financial assistance to U.S. oil companies. Louisiana Governor John Bel Edwards, a Democrat, on Friday temporarily suspended his state's oil severance taxes. Those are royalties paid by the oil and gas industry for extracting the public's resources.
1: So they're talking about storing oil in pipelines, just basically leaving it there? Yes. And what happens when they fill up, when there is no place to put it? Then all of the oil goes to negative pricing and they are paying
2: people to take it off their hands? Where will they put it? That is the big question. And yet they can't stop
1: drilling because they're drug pushers.
2: And just a heads up, industry analysts warn that on the other side of the pandemic, assuming that there is one, that's grim, it will take time to restart oil production with likely supply shortages and spikes in oil and gas prices. But there is some good news for the fragile Arctic. Banking giants Morgan Stanley and Citigroup are the latest major financial institutions to announce that they will no longer finance new oil and gas projects in the Arctic. Morgan Stanley specifically said it will not support direct financing for exploration or development in the pristine Arctic National Wildlife Refuge.
1: When will Donald Trump's war on oil ever end?
2: Well, that was a bit too much for Republican Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska. In an Oval Office appearance with Trump on Friday, he accused the big banks of being prejudiced
1: they're starting to discriminate against american energy companies discriminate against investment in my state in alaska and i think it's going to be really important these big these big wall street banks that want to that want uh the federal government to help support them and then they discriminate against A critical sector of the U.S. economy. So are they demanding that these banks invest in these oil companies? What about the free market? What about not picking winners and losers? I guess that doesn't matter when the losers in question are the oil companies.
2: And despite cratering oil prices, the Alberta provincial government in Canada is doubling down on the controversial Keystone XL pipeline. The Alberta government has agreed to invest $1 billion in the project despite 10 years and counting of litigation. However, a federal judge in Montana recently blocked the project's construction on the U.S. side again, ruling that permits issued by the Army Corps of Engineers violated Federal Endangered Species Act and clean water laws ordering a do-over.
1: Oh, so now the courts are discriminating. It's outrageous. We need a Civil Rights Act for the fossil fuel industry.
2: <laughs> but Canada is trying out something a bit different to retain jobs, creating a $100 million fund to give out grants to oil field services companies to clean up abandoned wells.
1: Good. About time they cleaned up after themselves.
2: Finally, New York City is joining a growing group of major U.S. cities that are banning cars on streets that are mostly empty anyway due to stay-at-home orders and opening them up to pedestrians to help them get outside while still maintaining social and physical distance amid the coronavirus pandemic. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced on Monday that the Big Apple will temporarily ban cars on about 40 miles worth of streets in and around city parks. They'll install bike lanes and expand sidewalks with a goal of giving 100 miles of streets ultimately back to city residents.
1: So that's only during the crisis, right? Right. It'll end on the other side.
2: Yes, if there is one. Grim. But you know, New York City residents may not want to give them back.
1: For much more on all of these stories and those we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: And I'm Desi Doyan.
1: And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, as always, our producer. Great job. Thank you very much. Also, my thanks to our guest today, Eric Bollert of Pressrun.media, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible uh, by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate To help us stay on the air and help keep our archives free. That would include Brian of New Hampshire, uh, who sent in a donation yesterday along with this note to say, uh, I am writing to thank you for a good laugh tonight. He was citing the Brad Pitt-Anthony Fauci <laughs> skit we played on yesterday's program. Yep. You're you're welcome, Brian. I had hoped to do some uh, Stephen Colbert today, but couldn't get to it. Just don't have enough time for everything. He said, I haven't been able to laugh lately. I live alone. I turn 67 on Wednesday. Your show makes my day here on WNHN in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, thank you, he says. Well, thank you, Brian. Yeah, and happy birthday, Brian. Happy birthday, yeah. Brian. Uh, really appreciate uh, your thought and uh, hope we can continue finding ways to help you laugh among these troubled <laughs> times. Uh, yeah. In any event, uh, thank you. Uh, you can drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I hope you will find me there and share all that we do here on the Bradcast and at bradblog.com every day. All right, that's it. Thank you. Until we meet again, I hope, tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.